If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. I'm Kim Hakem, your host. Welcome to another episode of And Security for all. So glad you guys are joining me again. We have, uh, as we've always been doing, we have uh, two audiences today. We have our LinkedIn Live viewers, our listeners and viewers, and our Security for All viewers. Thanks for being here today. Super excited to be here. I'm actually calling in today from Cabo, Mexico. I thought I'd share a little bit with you what's going on down here. Very interesting. I haven't been here in two years since COVID. It happens to be one of my favorite places that I love to visit. But things are a little um, slow down here as far as uh, vaccinations. Things are, it's packed with people here. It's hard to get reservations. It's only 25% of the people in the restaurants. The local um, Mexicans, most of them have to fly to the states to get their vaccinations, but they just opened up vaccinations this week. So they're starting to vaccinate the 18 to 18 and up. So very interesting. Not at all what I expected because I had lots of people telling me they were going down to Cabo, had no idea that the restaurants and everything, they all close at 10 o'clock. So um, for the most part, people seem to be doing pretty good down here. It was just, I thought since so many people were coming down here, they'd be a little, you know, I thought it'd be a little more um, progressed than what we saw um, on the news and stuff. But again, thank you so much for tuning in with us today. Um, for all of our LinkedIn Live uh, listeners, please make sure that you join any of our conversation today. You can put any of your comments in and we will definitely address them. I want to remind everyone that this podcast and this radio show happens every Friday at noon Pacific time. You can listen to any of our shows on any of your favorite podcast platforms like iTunes, Google Play, Tune in, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, wherever you like to listen to your um, station, your shows. Today, I have another great guest. He happens to be back again. I have Matthew Runquist. He's the Chief Information Security Officer from Eclipse. He was the formerly a cybersecurity strategist for Intel Corp and benefits for 30-plus diverse years in fields of cyber, physical, and information security. Matthew is a member of multiple advisory boards and consults on best practices and emerging risks to academic businesses, government audiences across the globe. People know him very well. He has a huge following on LinkedIn. And today we have lots more to talk about. Last time he was on the show, we talked about the reshaping of cybersecurity landscape. Today we're going to talk about nation state attacks, um, what to do about ransomware, supply chain, rise to cybercrime, all that stuff that is um, happening every day. So welcome again to the show, Matthew. It's always a pleasure to chat cybersecurity with you. And, and you were one of the best to chat about it. I think last time we had to just cut because we, we couldn't even get through our everything. So uh, it's a pleasure to have you back. Thanks for joining us. So where what's going on in your life, Matthew, and where are you calling in from today? 
Uh, from sunny California. It's uh, nice and warm out here. We're, we're drying up in the drought and, and feeling the heat. But it's, are you it's are you guys having any issues with fires? I saw in the news there were some fires going on. Like it's just the beginning of fire season here, unfortunately, and the drought exacerbates the problems. And we generate a lot of our power from hydroelectric. And again, without the water, you're not generating electricity. There's it's a compounding set of issues, and we're just starting the season. So, unfortunately, you're going to hear a lot more about California throughout the year. I think we're going to have lots of problems. Well, that would tie into our subject, a compounding set of issues that we have in the cybersecurity industry. And um, I don't even know where to start. I think the best place, maybe <laughs> let's just start about the latest. Well, I don't even know if the latest is the latest, but the, the biggest uh, ransomware attack that we recently had, the $70 million one, I, I, I don't even honestly, I've been traveling. I haven't had the news on. So can you give us an update of what's going on with that? Because I know in the beginning, they were still trying to identify what companies had been attacked. What's the latest on that? Yeah. And this is, uh, you know, although some people don't like the term, it's a supply chain attack, right? Uh, the, the company that was attacked, it was an IT company. They provide services out to their clients. And uh, some of their clients are MSP. So they're service providers that have a lot more customers. And so this basically impacted that chain through that services and those end customers, many of those end customers were then impacted. So we saw impacts to grocery stores and schools, and it wasn't limited just to the United States. It was, it's all over the globe, right? Uh, this particular company has customers all over the globes. And then those MSPs also service companies all over. And the particular attackers, uh, you know, decided to, well, they first were trying piecemeal to get ransoms from individual victims. And then they decided, ah, let's just make this easy and put a $70 million, you know, price tag on it and said, pay us that and, and we'll send the keys out to everyone. Um, so that's kind of where it's at right now. It's, it's gained a lot of attention, uh, a lot of politics, a lot of people in technology are talking about it. It's all the buzz in cybersecurity. And this is coming on the heels of uh, several other prominent ransomware attacks, you know, affecting uh, food supply, affecting fuel distribution. We've seen some attacks, you know, against cities, muni municipalities, all sorts of different things. So ransomware in general, is definitely rising as a major topic and a major issue for cybersecurity and everybody in the digital economy and, and ecosystem. Well, it certainly has. And is it so out of control that how do we rein anything back in as far as what do we do about ransomware? I mean, what would your suggestions be to just... Well, I have a suggestion. It's not popular. <clears throat> but, you know, even before we start looking at solutions, we need a better understanding of what the real problem is. And until we understand and define what the success criteria of what we want to do, right? Ultimately, you never get rid of all risk. We manage risk. We try and bring it down to a certain level. And the risks around ransomware, they're skyrocketing. If you just look at the ransoms that they're demanding, it's going up two to 300% every year, right? And that's untenable. I mean, that's, that's, that's a huge growth for, for cybercrime and, and other uh, aspects. But that isn't even the major impacts, right? That's just what they're demanding for money. The real impacts are when you take down the electrical grid and all the people, or you take out a, a major food supplier and food don't show up on shelves or, you know, fuel. And now there's a run on, you know, available gasoline or diesel or whatnot in large parts of, of a country. 
again, <clears throat> the impacts are increasing uh, much more than just the amount of ransoms, which again, 70 million, that's, that's, that's one of the biggest ones out there. Uh, an insurance company paid 40 million uh, a month or so ago, right, for, to get their access back. The amount of money flowing in to these attackers does two things. One, it emboldens them and empowers them to do more attacks. And the second thing it does is it attracts more people to start doing this. It brings in, it multiplies the attackers when they see this is profitable and you don't even need to have, you know, a high degree of technology capability. You can join a ransomware as a service and just send out emails and you could get a, you know, a slice of that. Um, so, you know, we, we have to understand the problem in the larger scope and define kind of what the, that success criteria. What is a win? What should we be pursuing? Because right now the industry is fractured. And everybody's focusing on solving one little problem at a time and not looking at the big picture and not looking at the long term, really, what do we want to achieve? Until we do that, there won't be really any meaningful progress to this. And the attackers will continue to have the advantage, continue to multiply, continue to have greater impacts on us until we get our act together, sadly. So can you give us any examples of some wins that have been out there and how we could use those wins to identify what people should be doing? Because it seems like I, I you know, I recently had um, James Azar. He, he does a, a cyber hub podcast and, you know, we were just talking about how some of the board, you know, the CEOs and the C-levels are just so confused because there's so yeah. many different attacks. So, so what advice could you say to them? What, where could you take some examples of some wins? And maybe if you even know of some examples of some wins, like share that with us and how could we use that to help some of these executives? Yeah, let's throw, let's throw a few out there. And then I'm going to caveat it all and, and kind of bring us back to reality. There are some best practices when we're talking about ransomware, right? Uh, first and foremost, make sure you've got a secure and mature security program. You've got to be following the basics at a minimum, right? Um, <clears throat> you need to be protecting uh, in relationship to the value. You don't protect everything equally, right? You need to to be kind of you know tactical and saying, okay, this is more important or this is greater risk. I'm going to put more effort there. Um, having a good, and that's really around prevention, right? Having a good detection capability and more importantly, a response capability. In most cases, that has to do with backups. And it's not just the backups. A lot of companies are like, oh, we back things up. You also need to be able to restore that environment in a timely and confident manner. And a lot of organizations just fail to look at that. They're not running annual tests to see if their backups work and that they can restore them in a timely fashion. So that tends to be an Achilles heels. But the companies that are doing that, that they've got a good DRBC, disaster recovery and business continuity plan, and they are testing it and they do have it documented not just electronically, because if those files get locked, well, then you don't know your plan, <clears throat> but also have paper copies and they have people trained and accountable. And in the event of a ransomware, they can enact those plans and get back up and running very, very quickly. Those are the ones who are going to win. There are some organizations think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get impacted. It's not going to affect me. I'm sure our security is fine. Those are the victims. If you're the ones that's saying that, you're going to be a victim. You need to start, start you know, applying some of those best practices. Now, 
the other aspect here is you can apply the very best practices and even avoid ransomware being directly attacked. But that doesn't mean that you're going to avoid the impacts. Again, ransomware is elevated to such a level that they are targeting critical infrastructure sectors. So even though, hey, your data center is protected and you know you staved off that attack, what happens when the power supply goes out because your power vendor got impacted by ransomware? Oops, doesn't really matter that your systems aren't in fact, you know, your, your data center goes down. So we're all in this together. If we're only thinking about it from what can my company do, we as a community have already lost. This is exactly how the attackers win by breaking it up and forcing us to try and do individual little efforts. The only real success that we're going to have is if we work together to undermine ransomware as a legitimate, desirable attack method. If we do that, then everybody benefits. So do you think that the government, what, what, are, your, what are your thoughts about the government and where they should um, have any accountability on what's happening with these private um, companies? So let me first and foremost say, I hate regulations when it comes to digital technology and services and everything else. I absolutely think that regulations typically, they, they don't get it right. It takes too long to get them in place and then they can't adapt easily. And it's not very healthy for the economy and everything else. But, but there is a situation where it does make sense. When the financial incentives are not aligned to the benefit of the end users, that's the point in time when regulation actually should come into play. We saw that with privacy. We saw that years ago where companies, they weren't notifying users when they lost their data or when it was stolen, right? And it actually took the government to come in, uh, nations around the world to say, no, you, we're gonna in, enact privacy laws so you do have to notify, you do have to protect. There are standards, you are liable, right? And that made a big change. I think we're at the point now with ransomware that also has to happen here because ransomware has been around for decades and it has not only survived the evolution of cybersecurity and cyber tools and processes and cyber innovation, it has thrived. So the status quo and how we normally address security issues, the ransomware groups are laughing in our face. They've thrived in that environment. Please continue doing that because they win. In this case, I think we need government to come in. And again, I hold kind of a controversial position. I believe that the government should criminalize paying the ransoms. And I know that sounds a little odd, and I know that sounds like, oh, well, you're punishing the victims. Actually, what it does is it sets in motion a chain of events, a cascading path that undermines the attackers even wanting to conduct attacks, which means everyone benefits. And that's how we, that's how we actually win. But we're going to have to feel some more pain, probably a lot more pain, before people come to that realization, unfortunately. You know, you're not the first guest that I've had on the show that takes that exact stance. They feel like they're very much in the middle, that they don't want regulations or sanctions or penalties, but yet what do you do if that yeah. doesn't happen? So it's a very fine line. It'll be very interesting to see what happens because you are right. I mean, we it's a joke right now. I mean, 
the the you know who knows what's going to happen today when we turn on the news every day yeah. it's something new i do have a comment from depesh shaw he said um it's really good to see that we are talking about backups in drbc when it comes to ransomware i have seen people huge i have seen people on huge platforms don't talk about backups but everything else awesome talk <laughs> Well, you know, there's not a whole lot of love for the DRBC community out there, but in the event of a ransomware, all the eyes turn towards them and go, please tell me you've been doing your job on a shoestring budget and that you can perform miracles and get our environment back up and running. And, you know, it's, it's unfair to them because they need a little bit more love. And if you really want that capability in the event of a disaster like ransomware, then you got to invest in it. You got to be proactive and you have to maintain it. There's always a cost to security, whether it's, you know, the, the spending, whether it's the friction, the time, you know, we have to look at it as a, a more holistic problem within every organization and also among the entire community. So many of our listeners on LinkedIn Live, they're pretty much cybersecurity people, but our um, listeners on Voice America are not always, you know, they don't really know a lot about cybersecurity and that's why they turn it into the show. So can you explain to them what DRBC means? Uh, Yes. So DRBC, and it's actually two phrases. Um, It's disaster recovery. That's the DR aspect of it. And then the BC is business continuity. And they're almost always related in some way, shape, or form uh, within an organization. But the DR, the disaster recovery, think if something bad happens to you, what do you need to do to kind of orient yourself, clean things up, and get things back up and running, right? How do you, you know, if a flood hit your house, how would you clean your house out and get everything back up and running, right, to a normal state? That's your disaster recovery. Business continuity is a little bit different. It basically is for environments where other people or customers or organizations or partners are relying on you and you need to keep those services up and running. So imagine a banking website, right? Where all the customers come in. If somebody attacks that server, you should have a plan that you've got another server, a backup server already running and you can switch over to it. Right. If power to one of your data centers dies, you should be able to offload all that traffic or workload or whatever you're doing to another data center and have it up and running. And it just reduces, greatly reduces or potentially even eliminates the downtime of availability uh, and for you to continue to provide whatever you provide to your customers and partners. So those that's kind of the aspects of DR and BC. We sometimes it kind of reminds me uh, last weekend. I live in St. Louis and we had a big storm and there was a something, something was hit in my neighborhood. It caught on fire. We were out of power from Friday until Monday. And if anyone knows St. Louis in the summer, it's generally about 100 degrees and humid. Fortunately, last weekend, it was like in the 80s. But it was one of those times where I'm like, I opened my door and I could hear all the houses that had generators, you know, and I was like, <laughs> darn, you know, I've thought about buying one, but you know, I really couldn't Those people one. had a business continuity plan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so they were able to keep the services, the air conditioner up and running. The people that had their emergency kits and, yeah. and, and so forth, that was the, you know, the disaster recovery plan, right? Exactly. To make sure they had food and, and clean water and everything. 
thing. So it's better yeah. to be in the business continuity side, but it's also more expensive, right? Exactly. So just kind of remember, it reminded me of last weekend. So anyway, same thing, you know, just, just like the people in Texas, you know, when they, when they had that big issue this year with that storm and they're, you know, and I guess, oh, with the snow and yeah. many, many people were not prepared for that. So um, let's talk, let's go back and talk a little bit about supply chain and third party risk and kind yeah. of break that down again, because I do try to give, I know our listeners on LinkedIn Live, they understand everything we're talking about, but sometimes the Voice America people would like to learn. Can you give some examples of supply chain and third party risk and what that means and what we're seeing? We're seeing it all over, not just in our industry, but you know, there's issues with these chips and all kinds of things. Car, it, it, it looks like I heard that used cars are starting to get better again, but uh, yeah. kind of break it I know that I have a back ordered fridge. I ordered it in January and it's still not here. And it's just a small little custom bar fridge. It's crazy. Uh, appliances and everything, how back ordered everything is. Yeah, when we talk in cybersecurity about third-party risk or supply chain risk, it's really about any company out there. For the most part, they most companies use third-party services. So you may have somebody that does your payroll. You may have an outsourced company that handles all your IT work, right? Um, or something of that sort. And many of the big companies, well, they buy products, right? To put into their environment, to monitor their IT environment or do all these things. But you're relying upon them and <clears throat> you trust them to have access to your data, right? That payroll company that you use to cut paychecks because you don't want to do it in the back room, right? You're using a company. Um, you're relying on them to be available, you know, come Friday and that they can take the data. They're going to keep the data secure. They're going to cut the right paychecks and send them out. They're going to do what they need to do. Uh, and so we have this reliance. And in order for them to have that data, you may give them access. You may trust them. You have to trust them with your data. Well, that is kind of like links in a chain, right? And you're tied together. If you do something wrong and expose your employee data, your link, you've broken your link. But on the other hand, if your you know, supplier vendor, right, uh, that cuts paychecks for you, they lose that you know, uh, security or they do something wrong and expose the data for your employees, their link is broken. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter which link is broken, the data is exposed. But the key is we're all linked together and that chain is only as strong as the strongest or as the weakest link. So all third party, right? Anybody outside your organization that you're trusting, and it could be an IT products vendor. It could be, you know, a business partner that you're sharing data with. It could be all sorts of different things. We have to, in our risk models, understand that we are all tied together and we're relying upon their security as well. And the industry over the past few years has been really concerned about this and has moved forward, but not very far. Now, cybersecurity, you know, the, the thought leaders for well over a decade have been saying this is this is a really, really weak point um, and it's going to fail. Even if you, big company or medium sized company or small company, do great in hardening your environment because you are trusting somebody that hasn't applied the same diligence, if they get breached, Right. Either you, you know, the, the data and services then get exposed there or the attacker can use that compromise 
to worm past all of your security because you already trust them, you trust that vendor, get inside of you and also cause more damage. And that's what we're seeing. That's what solar winds, which you know happened at the end of the last year and really kind of blossomed out at the beginning of this year, that was that wake up moment. Solar winds create or has a software, it's an IT tool that lots of companies love because this particular tool, you install it on all your servers all over the world and it reports back to you. It lets you know when they're up, when they're down, when they have problems, when you got to go do something to it. It's great, right? It's something that enables you to manage your, your complex IT environment, one of the tools, but it's installed everywhere and it has tremendous access rights. The attacker in this case didn't try and reach out to their specific targets, which were US government offices and agencies. It was also critical infrastructure and Fortune 500. Didn't try and just directly attack them. They went to this SolarWinds company, compromised their product. So when that product did an update, just like your Windows update or, or an application update, it pushed the malware to all those customers. And that allowed then the attackers to potentially get in. It opened the doors for them. Now, there were so many organizations that were impacted that, that were vulnerable at that point. The attackers didn't have the resources to go after them all. They, they were only able to go after a, a small section of them. But there were thousands. Almost every single Fortune 500 company was exposed. The bad guys could have come in and done terrible, terrible things. Right, critical infrastructure, every telecom in the US, major telecom company in the US was impacted, major government agencies impacted. So again, it's a one-to-many kind of attack. You compromise the IT tool that everyone's using, right? And how many of you use a cloud service? How many of you use an antivirus piece of software? Imagine if that piece of software, that company got compromised and as part of its normal patch, uploaded malware into your system and the bad guys had full access. That's what we're talking about. And for some large companies, it's not two or three vendors you have to worry about. It's thousands upon thousands of vendors. So that's the challenge that we have and there's really no good solution for it. We question vendors, that's the best practice right now to send them a questionnaire and see if maybe they've got some kind of certification or, or, or you know, oversight to say they're pretty secure, but it's not very, it, there's not a high degree of confidence there. They're just isn't. Well, that goes back to again, you know, who, where does that responsibility lie? You know, if they're providing a product that is not secure, I mean, who, well, like what? What's I think Solar Winds is still around, and they're fine as a company. Am I wrong about that? They they are still around. Uh, they were impacted. A lot of people turned it off immediately, and that's what we told people to turn it off. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that was the recommendation because you know we didn't even know how deep it went or even who was impacted. But we're seeing these companies take a hit in reputation, in sales, and we're seeing competitors then leverage that point in time going, hey, they suffered it, we've been investing in security, let's start marketing and showing differentiation, showing that we are stronger, better, that we deserve more market share. And it's starting to convince customers that security, cybersecurity should be a purchase criteria. It is important. 
And when that mind shift changes, whether it's with companies or consumers or whatnot, that security is important, now we get an up-leveling because companies start to compete. They want to be secure. And that's healthy for everyone. And that's really where we want to go. But to get there, it can take a lot of pain and suffering. And it can take a long, long time to get there. So how important do you think it is for companies to implement new roles like a BISO? You know, our industry changes <laughs> approximately every 18 months. Um, cybersecurity, the, the uh, most prominent types of attacks or threats or risks or what we need to look at or regulation, something major fundamentally changes about every 18 months. We are constantly evolving. And we're evolving and trying to evolve at the pace that the bad guys, the attackers, their innovation, they are nimble. They're constantly evolving, attacking. When attacks happen, we respond. Attackers maintain the initiative, right? If any of you are you know, from the military, they maintain the initiative. Defenders respond to that. So as organizations start feeling the heat and start getting impacted, whether it's them themselves or peers within their industry or just generally across the globe, concerns are raised, organizations have to respond to that. And it might be in defining ownership, you know, creating a new role, uh, emphasizing more in certain regulations for compliance or doing better risk assessments or investing in new tools or services, whatever it is, you have to continually adapt because no matter what security tool, process, service, um, you know, a group you put in place, from that moment, it starts to become antiquated. Right, because attackers are constantly evolving. So you have to evolve at least at the same speed as the attackers just to maintain parity. This is not a simple IT problem, right? These attackers, they're intelligent, they're highly motivated, they're skilled. They will find a way up, over, around, and they will keep pressing. And whatever barrier you put in place, they know it's coming. And they're already planning how to get, again, around, how to adapt to it. So it is a constant tug of war. We have to adapt. So organizations that are taking the step to say, yes, we are establishing new roles. We are uh, deprecating old systems. We are evaluating new systems. We're integrating new controls and changes. We're modifying policies, procedures, and, and different practices, guidelines, right, to stay in tune with the evolving threats, not only the threats of today, but the ones we're perceiving that are gonna come hit us tomorrow, those are the organizations that will have a decisive advantage. They are the ones that will be at the forefront and they're the ones that have the most mature capability to maintain that level of security assurance, to maintain their levels of acceptable risk. So when we go back to Colonial Pipeline and we know that their CEO came out and said that they just didn't really have a great plan in place, do you know what that looked like? Did they have a uh, chief information security officer? What did their team look like? And how much responsibility is it on the chief information security officer when a ransomware happens? 
It's a tough question, right? Because every organization has a different dynamic. And in some organizations, you have a CISO. Like in my organization, I report to the president. I talk with the CEO and all the C-level officers. I have access to the board when I need it. I mean, and so there is a high degree of influence and communication. And, you know, my company, you know, Eclipse, very security savvy. We're in the, you know, security market trying to protect data. So at the forefront, but you've got other organizations. And even if they have a CISO, they may be three or four levels down. They may not have a budget. And it could be partially their fault because they're not communicating. They're not taking the, the leadership. They can't show and justify the need. Um, it may be the, the um, uh, limiters just on how the culture is, where security has never been a problem or an issue, so we just don't invest in it, right? There can be a lot of different, it's easy to point the finger. And there can be a lot of different factors uh, when it comes to accountability. But in the case of Colonial Pipeline, right, they've got their kind of IT environment, and then they've got their operational environment, their OT environment, and one controls the actual flow of fuel, right? It is the, the nitty gritty, it's got grease on it kind of environment. The other one is the back office environment, the IT. Now, for their attack, right, it wasn't the OT environment that got compromised. There wasn't the attacker going in, which is possible, right? It's always possible to go into any digital system potentially and compromise it and turn off valves or, or crater some, some pumping software. It wasn't that. It was actually their billing software that got compromised. And because they didn't have access to their billing software, they chose not to pump oil through the pipelines because they didn't know how to bill the customers. So until they could get that back up and running, they knew they could build the customers appropriately, they stopped the flow. Okay, it's a business decision, I get it, right? But again, there's so many different weak points and so many different areas to defend. It's really tough. And I can guarantee you that CISO and the security department prior to that hack probably didn't have a whole lot of weight. I bet now, they have access to the C-suite, to the board. They've been asked, what do we need to invest? They've probably, you know, they've had their, their fundraising moment, unfortunately, and now they're getting more resources to, to apply. It's a learning lesson. So do you think that they've been the example for all the other companies that are kind of just sweeping cybersecurity under the rug? It's not going to happen to me. Do you think it's waking people up yet or Some. not? Some, yes. And when we see a big attack like that that hits the news, in that sector typically, the ears pop up, right? The dog ears, everybody's dog ears pop up and go, hey, that could have been me. And they start looking inwards going, our security was no better than theirs. Okay, let's learn from their mistake. Let's learn from their victimization and let's do something about it. You get other companies that still go, no, for whatever reason, um, well, we can't afford security, or we don't understand it, or we don't have the talent, or we're too small, no one's going to attack us, right? There's lots of different justifications, biases, false arguments to make. And again, that happens, right? It, you know, security is not relevant until it fails. It's, it's an axiom we have in the industry. And when it fails, then it's hugely relevant. It's a little too late, but it's hugely relevant. And for some organizations, it takes that kick in the teeth. 
to really come around and go, yeah, I was kind of lying to myself. I thought I was too small. Apparently I wasn't. And now potentially I'm going out of business. Mm-hmm. And we see 60 to 90% of small and me- medium companies go out of business within two years, depending on the metrics you look at, between 60 and 90% after a major cybersecurity incident. Is it for the small to medium sized business? Is there, I mean, I know not, you know, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, but is, you know, we see a lot of banks, it happens to banks. Is there primarily a typical industry that, you know, you see a pattern of going out of business? Well, not necessarily going out of business, right? The small and medium companies, they're the ones that in many cases in their own mind, their own narrative, we're too small. No one's going to attack me. And that's the the false argument, the, the pillow they put in front of the truck, right? Thinking that they're, ah, oh, it's fine. I don't need to invest, right? Nobody sees me and it's not true. And because of that, they do nothing for the most part, right? They're not even following the basics, um, and they get crushed. The truck runs them over, unfortunately. Larger companies, especially with stockholders, and you've got boards, and, and a lot of boards now are bringing advisory boards in. Uh, many boards now have cybersecurity professionals on them. Uh, same thing with advisory boards. I, I'm on many, and we're raising that issue. And we're not letting the company just hide behind the pillow. So larger companies, and even some smaller companies are doing this as well, which is great are bringing in the expertise. And the expertise, the important aspect of them is to be able to communicate what the real risks are in terms that the audience and the leadership understands. You can't be using, you know, crazy um, cybersecurity nuance, you know, verbiage and confusing people. It's got to be relevant to them in terms that they understand so that it isn't something that they just don't get, right? So communicating to them that it is important, it is relevant to them, and it can fit within their business model. It doesn't take billions of dollars, right? For every organization, it's a little different, but it's like anything else. It's like good hygiene, right? You gotta brush your teeth in the morning. You gotta do it. Um, but if you're afraid of a toothbrush or, or don't know, okay. So you know, get the right expertise in and understand at least the basics that need to be done. And that goes a huge way. Large organizations, especially ones with stockholders, public companies, there's an expectation, right? So they're already bringing in. Now they may not be um, sufficiently resourcing those organizations to attain the desired risk level. And that's something that needs to be worked. But at least large organizations typically are assigning roles and responsibilities of nothing else. So it's a start. But every industry is a little different. And the finance industry, for example, which is where all the money is, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's almost 20 years ago, they really started getting attacked. Well, it's because that's where the money is, right? Um, And they learned after about 10 years, okay, we really need to harden this. So right now, that industry, above most all others, is spending more than almost every other industry out there. And they're much more mature. They're not impervious, but they're much more mature, which means the only attackers that are really going after them are are the highly skilled ones that are targeting, right? Other attackers will still give it a shot and, you know, you know, send, you know, phishing attempts and so forth. But it's the ones that are succeeding are only the high end attackers. Now, the other industries that haven't 
gotten to that maturity, well, they're more susceptible. And attackers, they're like you and me, right? They want to achieve their objective with the minimal amount of work possible. So the industries and the companies that are the easy targets, yeah, they're number one on the list. And when it comes to things like cybercrime and ransomware, at the end of the day, the criminals just want to get money. They don't care who it's from, right? As long as they get the money. So the easy targets typically are the ones most of the attackers are going after, with the exception of some of these elite crews that can go, I can go after someone big. It might take me months, but it's worth it because I'm going to get 10, 40, 70 million dollars at the end of the day. I'm willing to put in six months or 12 months for that investment. And they're just going to get better and better and better because they're going to use that money to improve their R&D, to buy more vulnerabilities, to do lots of things. So that kind of takes me into talking about nation state attacks. And let's talk about some of these nation state attacks and attackers. I, I often try to envision like, what does that look like? You know, when they go to work and when they, when they finally attack someone and they get in, is it, you know, a big rally, like, you know, they're, they're on wall street and you know, <laughs> just went high, there's celebrations, you know? there's cake yeah. in the break room. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, in some cases, yes, absolutely. There are promotions and medals issued um, in some cases when you're talking nation states. And it's, you know, it's a, it, in some cases, you're going to work nine to five, parking in the garage, going into a building and doing what you need to do. But, um, you know, when we look at the threat agent archetypes and we break it out to a whole bunch of different kinds, and at the nation state level, and a nation state attacker, by the way, is any attacker that is either directly, you know, a government is directly funding and managing the attackers, or they're, it could be outsourced, but they're just funding it, right? It could be a third party that they're funding a, a hacking crew, even in another country, another nationality, but they're funding them to do attacks, right? And we classify them a little different because nations, they have a lot of money to spend, billions of dollars, in fact, to be able to spend on these attacks, on developing the vulnerabilities, developing the exploits, testing them, deploying them. They can apply other resources, right? You need somebody on the ground in Kabul to, to pass a, you know, a, a USB drive? A nation state can make that happen. Your normal everyday cyber criminals don't have those resources, right? They don't have the global reach. So at, you know, if you can imagine an, a, a pyramid of attackers, nation states are at the very top. They have the most resources. They're willing to invest long-term. They're willing to make it careers for their workers, right? And invest over decades. So they have the greatest possible capabilities to do harm and, and propagate attacks. Um, but there is not only, there's not just one flavor. In fact, we typically break it up into three different type of nation state attackers. Number one, you've got nation states that are either directly doing attacks or funding somebody else to do it to get hard currency, right? They're doing things like ransomware because they're trying to get around sanctions or regulations or embargoes and their country needs hard currency to buy things or to support their government. So they're doing cyber crime, right? And they're investing at it at a national level to do that. Um, countries like Iran, countries like North Korea, 
they're actively doing those things because they are trying to survive in the face of embargoes and, and, and sanctions and so on and so forth. So we've got nation states doing that. The second group that nation states are doing are the intelligence gathering. These are the spies, right? This is the, the CIA of the world um, <clears throat> and different countries. Well, they all try and gather information and the digital communication networks are perfect for that. So they have hackers that are, and again, it can be internal, right? You could have a job description badge in for the day, come into the office and you're a government worker and this is what you do. Uh, but they're really about compromising um, governments, compromising other major companies that support governments and figuring out what they're doing, right? Um, you know, what technology are they developing? What policies are they working on? Who's in control? Who can we influence? Who can we compromise, right? But it's about intelligence gathering. And that's huge. When we saw solar winds, Solar winds was that type of an attack. It was a nation state. It was hugely complex. There were probably hundreds of millions of dollars spent for that particular attack. Uh, and when the attackers did get in, they didn't break anything. They didn't try and harm anything. They were sucking up information. They were gathering intelligence. Okay. So again, here in the United States, you've got the NSA, you've got CIA, um, you know, those kinds of organizations that that's their job, gather intelligence. Then you have a third group and you don't see this as often, but every major government out there is, is developing the capability. And this is to do harm, right? Uh, governments have militaries that do harm, right? And really it's, it's a political tool to push policies, to influence governments, to protect yourself, to do all sorts of different things. The same thing with cyber. And we're seeing an integration of those cyber technologies into the battlefields as well. We've seen different companies use cyber attacks to take down radar installations so their planes could fly over unharmed, right? Do things like that. Or to um, maybe to a dissident state, go in and turn off their economy, right? Shut down their banking supply or turn off their power or things of that sort. Uh, we're seeing that. And there are governments who do use this. Uh, we've seen it in the Middle East, uh, quite a bit in the Middle East and in Eastern Europe. And you don't even have to share a border and you can reach out and influence somebody around the world. Even if it's just a message saying, I can touch you and I can cripple you. Um, it helps on the political scene, unfortunately. So those are kind of the three different nation states that we have to worry about, those kinds of attacks. And they have different profiles. So when we had the, um, and it just slipped my mind, you'll know it, the, the, Attackers for Colonial Pipeline, they were called, um, what, what, what were the name of that group? I forgot what they were called. But they kind of went off. They said that they were going to quit and they were ran off. So where, where, would you, uh, where would you put them? How would you classify them? What, so, first of all, can you remember the name? It was I think like, it was Re-Evil, if, uh, uh, like if I remember right. And they did just disappear a couple of days ago. Um, their normal websites, and they've got a whole marketing website, by the way. Uh, so they've got a marketing website and, and infrastructure and communications, right? They went dark uh, a couple I of days ago. I think they were ago. called dark something. Dark um, or... There's several of them out there. I can't remember yeah. if it was re-evil or if it was, but 
anyway. you know, that particular attack was a traditional cybercrime attack. It was an organization going in and it, it's one of the top tier groups. So they've got the skills, they're organized, they've got talent, and they've got all these previous wins and bankrolls of money from previous attacks that they're able to leverage forward and go after bigger and bigger targets. Um, in this case, they were after money. That's all they were after, right? Uh, so it's it's more of a traditional cyber crime where the threat actor is looking for personal financial gain. That's what these attackers were after. So it's it's pretty plain and simple. It's it's not all that sexy. It's a thief. It's a cyber thief, really, is what it is. You know, we call them cyber criminals, but um, they're just after after gain. Now they did disappear, and nobody quite knows why. Uh, I just put a survey out on LinkedIn and a whole bunch of people answered and uh, about 30,000 people took a look at it. But, uh, you know, right now, the biggest belief among the community, at least of my followers that answered, is that they're just turned off for a little while to rebrand, which normally happens to many of these groups as part of their kind of marketing campaign, if you will. When the heat gets turned up, they just change their names. They say, oh, we're giving up. We're retiring. And in a month's time, they reappear with a different name, basically the same tool and code set with a little different changes, but they just start over again, right? And, you know, the greed principle says they're not going to give up. Right. Not at such a successful, lucrative enterprise, which is what it is to them. Mm -hmm. They're getting millions of dollars. One of the ransomware group, it was estimated that they've taken in over their career over $2 billion. Wow. What cyber criminal is going to walk away from that paycheck? None. And so, and then here we are talking about the rise of cyber crime. Mm -hmm. And we... We have a few minutes. We probably have about four or five minutes left. Um, let's talk about that. I mean, of course, there's going to be a rise of cybercrime because how can They're there winning. not? Why not? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, and, it's very sad. So, so what can you say about that? And are there some numbers? I, I mean, yes. I read statistics all the time, you know. But what are you seeing this year for 2021? So, you know, one of the numbers that they threw out for 2021, and this was estimated uh, two years ago, is it would reach about $6 trillion. And that figure is not only the, you know, what it costs for, you know, paying things, but it's all the damage and downstream damage and costs to an economy, to a society, about $6 trillion this year. And they think it's going to go up within three years to $10 trillion. The World Economic Forum lists cybercrime and cyber attacks uh, typically as well they, they break it up into three different categories and each of them are in the top 10. So and combined it's probably number one or number two right so we're, we're seeing major impacts to economies and to the trust of digital technology and when we start losing the trust of digital technology we slow down our investments. I don't know about you, but I love tech. I want to. I want the innovation and digital, digital technology to continue to flow, and we're getting to a point that if the trust erodes enough, people aren't going to do that, right? They're not going to want their lives on the line because of a first-generation product, right, or an insecure product. So we've got concerns there. The other thing that I would say is, you know, we've got what about five billion people that are connected a little less uh, on the internet. We're going to have another billion people connected. And the next billion people 
um, they're going to be from countries that are less affluent than the first four and five billion that joined. And those countries, right, most of the world earns less than $20 a day. Most people on the planet earn less than $20 a day. A vast majority of the next billion people are going to be fall into that category. They're going to be looking to joining the internet as an opportunity to be able to gain money, to put food on the table for basic things. And now we've got things like ransomware where you have to have no skills. You can do ransomware as a service. All you need to do, all you need is a cell phone. You can send out emails and texts and get people to click on a malicious link. And then you get a slice of the profits. We're going to, it's going to attract a good chunk of the next billion people that join the internet are going to start leaning towards these cybercrime activities. And the world is not prepared for that level of onslaught, that number, that sheer tsunami of new attackers. Even if they are low technical, it doesn't matter, right? So, so we've got about two minutes left. So can you take one minute instead of ending on such a gloomy, gloomy <laughs> way? What can you leave our listeners with? Okay. Um, what can they do, you know, for themselves? Okay. So a couple of things, you know, for every person out there and every small, medium, large, you know, don't be an easy target. Follow the basics. Figure out what it is. Yes, you will be targeted. There's enough attackers. You will. So learn the basics. Follow it. It does not cost a lot, right? Um, and make sure you know what's valuable to you. Protect that a, a little more or a lot more. And lastly, all the challenges that we face, they are manageable. But we have to communicate to understand the challenges, and we have to work together. The bad guys are really good at communicating and working and sharing. They share data and attacks and victims, and they do all that. We need to do the same. If we try and go at it individually or piecemeal, the attackers win. They just have too much of an advantage. We have to work together. And that takes effort, it takes patience, and it takes a matter of forums like this to come together and listen and share. So please take that step forward for everyone's benefit. So Matthew Runquist is the Chief Information Security Officer from Eclipse. And what is the best way to people to find you? Probably LinkedIn? LinkedIn, um, if you like my rants, I actually started a, uh, a channel on YouTube called Cybersecurity Insights. So you can look that up, Cybersecurity Insights and my name, it'll pull it up. And I rant every week on different types of topics. So there, or follow me on LinkedIn. Well, and I'm sure people can find that podcast on LinkedIn if they go. And I'll make sure that my marketing tags you. So, again, Matthew Rehnquist is Chief Information Security Officer from Eclipse. Thank you so much for being on the show again. Thanks for coming back. We love talking with you and hearing your expertise on what you have to say about the industry. And thank you for all your work that you're doing out there. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of And Security for All. Um, have a magnificent weekend. Stay safe, stay secure, and we'll see you next Friday. Cheers, everyone. tuning into and security for all be sure to join your host kim hakem for another episode of the show next friday at noon pacific time and 3 p.m eastern time on the voice america business channel and don't forget you can follow kim on linkedin by searching for kim hakem that's kim h-a-k-i-m to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events
Are you a cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? FutureCon Events brings high-level cybersecurity training, discovering cutting-edge security approaches, managing risk in the ever-changing threat of the cybersecurity workforce. Cybersecurity is no longer just an IT problem. To learn more about attending a virtual event, go to futureconevents.com or email info at futureconevents.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at futureconhq. Don't miss the weekly FutureCon seamless podcast series focusing on the insights and thoughts of chief security officers and industry pioneers making a difference throughout the world. Kim Hakem, CEO of FutureCon Events, and Darren Anderson, CEO and co-founder Next Robotics, host seamless podcast started by a team of entrepreneurs with experience in fields like smart cities, technology, cybersecurity. The result is a series of podcasts unlike anything you've ever heard anywhere. Listen where you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at Voice AM Business. Again, that's at Voice AM Business. And stay current. Have you ever been interested in technology or the application? Technology is always changing, and there is definitely a place for you in it. Listen for Coding the Future with Dr. Sharon Jones. Sharon and her guests teach you the skill set and present resources that help you incorporate and enhance technological know-how in your current career, as well as prepare you for future success. Listen every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or Amazon Kindle. The Voice America interactive radio player powered by Aircast gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new